in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. Like you can tell the patient, you know, eat more vegetables or cut out some processed food, but you know, like making that change is so difficult. You know, it's interesting. Some patients I see have the mindset to make the change. And in those folks, I really dive in headfirst with them and, and do whatever it takes to get them to make that change and, and give them the advice that they need. There are some people, as both of you guys know, who just, they've got a brick wall up. Uh, I am who I am. I'm not going to make that change. Um, and I spend less time trying to get them to make that change. But I will tell you, I don't give up. There is now data to show that the people who are doing endurance athletics, uh, just working out usually large amounts of time, let's say that, uh, can actually do damage to the heart. It's too much of a stress on the heart. It, it causes uh, fibrosis in the heart, scarring in the heart. Um, some of these people can have uh, heart rhythm disturbances, atrial fibrillation. The other thing that it can cause is, uh, believe it or not, a uh, plaque lay down in the coronary arteries. Um, I, I say to my patients that anything in a box, can, or a bag is guilty until proven otherwise. Um, because uh, the, the food industry doesn't really care about your or my health. Uh, they just care about their stock price and selling their food items to us. My name is Jorge Roman, author of Return to Human, certified health coach in training, metabolically flexible individual, and insulin sensitive human. In this podcast, I will relentlessly ask, why is there so much conflicting information about health, nutrition, and lifestyle recommendations? Is there more to the story? Or are those individuals involved with natural and alternative health simply a bunch of pseudoscientific quacks? I will often have solo episodes discussing relevant scientific research around nutrition, supplementation, and powerful lifestyle practices. I'll also occasionally plug my health coaching programs shamelessly. I'll also be interviewing thought leaders from all walks of life in an attempt to discover what truly makes someone sick or healthy. Now, I will do this all with no agendas, no ideology, no BS, just the truth. Regardless of the fact that one, it'll be very difficult to do, and two, I will inevitably trigger and anger some narrow-minded and myopic individuals. Now, to live damn well doesn't simply mean living life perfectly. We're all going to die someday, so striving for that ultimate health is a pretty counterproductive goal. Rather, I hope to learn from myself and empower others to fulfill their purpose and enjoy life to the fullest, all while being disease-free, energetic, and in total control of their biology. Learning to take responsibility for yourself, staying true to your deepest commitments, and enjoying life to the fullest is what Live Damn Well is all about. I believe humanity already has all of the tools to create a life which is disease-free, joyful, and highly fulfilling. Now we need to do the hardest part, cutting through the divisive, arrogant, close-minded BS which holds us all back from creating the world we deeply desire. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and I hope to serve you on yours. So today's guest will have Dr. Michael Silverman. He is the chairman of internal medicine at Howard County General Hospital. He has practiced cardiovascular medicine through Johns Hopkins since 1994 and is a board certified physician. Dr. Silverman has special interests in echocardiography and nuclear cardiology, 
as well as uh, cardiovascular disease in athletes. Dr. Silverman, welcome to the podcast. Is Thank you, Ben. Thank you, ben. Thank you Orte. It's, a, it's an honor to be here today. Dr. Silverman, do you have um, a story or a background that helps you find yourself in this in this position? So I, I do not have a medical problem that drove me into the profession, uh, nor do I have any family members, at least at the time I was making my, my career decision that drove me into the profession. Um, the, the truth of the matter is there was a book that I read in the uh, 70s, yes, I'm that old, uh, called The Making of a Surgeon. It was by a guy by the name of William Nolan, and it was basically his experience of becoming a surgeon at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Uh, that just piqued my interest in the profession. I read it sometime when I was in high school. Um, I was always a science guy, you know, biology, chemistry, all that stuff just interested me. The social sciences, I just didn't really care about English and that sort of thing, at least at that time in my life. And uh, sort of the melding of those two things is what got me into, into medicine in general. Now, as I went through my uh, educational process, certainly my career choices changed along the way. We can get into that if you want as to how I made some of those decisions. Um, should we go in that direction next? Yes, of course. Uh, so I initially wanted to be a family practitioner. I, I thought it was just sort of a dream job that I could take care of the entire person. Um, and when I got into my uh, education, I recognized that it's almost impossible to take care of the entire person because the knowledge base that you need is just so vast. Um, so along the way, I decided, well, I'm going to specialize. Uh, surgery did not light my fire. I was just not interested in it for whatever reason. I was not interested in delivering babies, and I was not interested in psychiatry and uh, radiology. I didn't want to sit in a dark room and read pictures all day. Uh, no offense to my radiology colleagues. Um, so anyway, uh, internal medicine was clearly the way for me. Um, initially, interestingly enough, I wanted to be an infectious disease doctor, and that's sort of germane to what's going on in the world right now. But I started my um, residency literally at the beginning of the explosion of the HIV epidemic. So that was a long time ago. And at that time, those people were just dying in front of our eyes and we had nothing to do for them. Um, no treatments at all similar to what we have today, unlike what we have today. And um, well, I said, I don't want to go into a profession where I don't really have a lot to take care of you know, some of these patients. And uh, so that, that got pushed aside. Um, from there, I moved to cardiology, and that was just the mentors that I had along the way. Um, I'm a fast-moving kind of guy. I want to make decisions quickly. I, I don't want to dawdle. That's what cardiology is. Uh, someone's coming in with a heart attack uh, or, or whatever or, or a heart rhythm disturbance. you got to make a quick decision. You don't really have time to think, and, and that's what my personality was. Um, so the combination of the pace of cardiology, um, the uh, mentors that I was associated with. And at that time, I also realized, uh, thought more that I had a grandmother who did have bad heart disease, and that was some of the stimulation as well. So that's how I landed in cardiology. So I want to touch on something you said a little bit earlier, that you have to have this massive knowledge base because you know humans, living things in general, are just so incredibly complex that fitting all that information into one person is just, it, it's pretty impossible. It's like virtually impossible, especially because we're learning more about it every single day. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, health coaching. It's kind of a new um, addition yeah. to the tool set of uh, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners. And it's basically like, um, because I'm right now I'm training to be uh, just certified as a health coach. And okay. it's basically like facilitating behavior change because 
Uh, and I think that's important right now because we have, you know, I'm not sure how long you spend with patients, but I think the average is anywhere from 10 to 17 minutes uh, conventionally, much. right? And uh, it's difficult to actually, like you can tell the patient, you know, eat more vegetables or cut out some processed food, but you know, like making that change is so difficult. So is that something that you, you know, experience as a, as a challenge in actually getting people to make those behavior changes? So the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. Some patients I see have the mindset to make the change. And in those folks, I really dive in headfirst with them and, and do whatever it takes to get them to make that change and, and give them the advice that they need. There are some people, as both of you guys know, who just, they've got a brick wall up. Uh, I am who I am. I'm not going to make that change. Um, and I spend less time trying to get them to make that change. But I will tell you, I don't give up. So it's just one visit. They're going to come back and see me in a month, two months, or three months, and I'll try again then. Um, you know, there are some people who after three or four or five visits, they're not going to make the change, and I just give up. I, I'll basically throw the medications at them to treat their conditions. Uh, but, yeah, it's a big part of things. Yeah, absolutely. And so the next question that I want to get into is this concept of aesthetics versus health or performance versus health. And I know that's something that you're interested in. As I was reading your bio, you're more interested in like endurance athletes, right? right? And and sometimes uh, something that we've noticed as swimmers is there's a, a very, um, sometimes can be conflicting, right? You're trying to maximize your performance in the water and actually that being a little too much, you know, we have like nine practices per week, two to four hours. I mean, it's crazy right. stuff. So like, where do you draw that line between like maximizing performance and still being healthy? Uh, well, I mean, you guys are competitive athletes. It's a different breed, um, you know, than the patients that I have. I mean, typical recommendations for an adult is if I can get that out, get them to go out and do something five to six days a week for an hour. We can talk about what that something is. Uh, that's what they need to be healthy. I mean, that's what the research shows. You guys are a different situation. You're, you're competing uh, at, at a high level, um, you know. 3% of my patients are, are, are that, you know, the other 97% are, are regular people who are just trying to stay healthy. Dr. Silverman, would you, do you think that there's a point? I mean, obviously the answer to this question can be yes, but the I'd say a better way to phrase it would be, where do you, where would you say the point is pushing for performance specifically in endurance, high stress endurance events starts to become detrimental to one's health rather than beneficial? So it's actually an excellent, timely question. So first of all, I'll draw both of your attention at another time to go look at a book called The Haywire Heart. Um, it was uh, written by a uh, endurance cyclist and by a uh, cardiologist out of the Midwest, which really goes through everything I'm going to talk to you about in great detail. It's very well written. Uh, but there is now data to show that the people who are doing endurance athletics uh, just working out, I don't want to say excessive amounts of time, but unusually large amounts of time, let's say that, uh, can actually do damage to the heart. It's too much of a stress on the heart. It, it causes uh, fibrosis in the heart, scarring in the heart. Um, some of these people can have uh, heart rhythm disturbances, atrial fibrillation. So I see, a, I see that. It's not unusual that I'll see that in some of my endurance athletes. Uh, the other thing that it can cause is, uh, believe it or not, a uh, plaque lay down in the coronary arteries as people get older. So I, I think at your guys' stage of your life, it's not an issue at all. 
but if you continue on this path um, until you're 50 or 60, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there is a risk that it's going to happen. So uh, I answer the question. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, it really is. That's, that's crazy. And so just because I'm like, just very curious about the mechanisms by which things work, how, how exactly would that work? You said that it's like calcification of the arteries. So, so there's two issues here. The, the heart is a, uh, basically an electrical organ that drives a pump. Okay. So the electrical portion of it all, um, there's an electrical current that runs through our heart and, and the continual stresses on the heart um cause the heart to enlarge and stretch and 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 not not have the uh the uh anatomy that it was that we were born with and that stretching of the heart and that continual stress on the heart uh causes those cells to start to malfunction in simple terms okay okay now, the other part of it though is the calcium portion of it all and this isn't necessarily related to the calcium in your diet okay so take that as put that aside uh, the two main components of plaque are cholesterol and calcium, okay? Unrelated, once again, to the calcium in your diet. Um, and uh, they have found, and I don't know that they understand the mechanism, to be honest with you, as to why we start to lay down this calcified plaque in endurance athletes. It's a, it's a new field. I mean, I, I would say it's really come to light in the past two to four years, and we're all still trying to figure it out, because uh, you have to realize there's a limited number of people that we can study. Right. Uh, you know, how many endurance athletes are in the world? Uh, and then how do you do a controlled trial of an endurance athlete versus a non-endurance athlete? So we're all trying to figure it out right now. Um, it's more of an association and observation is where we are right now. But it's a real finding. I see it. Gotcha. And I know that there are at least vitamin K, for example, like plays a role in moving calcium out of the bloodstream, putting it into the bones or teeth where it belongs. And uh, so could that also play a role? And what are things that people can do? Like, for example people that really love to do endurance sports and just don't want to give them up? What's something that they could possibly do to help them reduce that risk? So before I answer that question, nobody knows about the vitamin K stuff yet. I, gotcha. mean, I haven't even seen that mentioned in the literature, to be honest with you. So I would say we don't know. Uh, the bottom line is, is um, I, I think the expression is uh, you can't outrun a crappy diet. Uh, so, or you can't outswim a crappy diet. So the bottom line is, is you have to be sensible. Uh, so you still have to eat healthy. So just because, uh, you, you know, you're an endurance swimmer or, you know, or sprinter like you guys are, or, you know, a long distance cyclist or a marathon run, or even some of these crazier longer runs, you still got to eat right. So, um, so that's number one. And then number two, as you get older, you have to be sensible. Uh, you can't do when you get older, what you guys are doing now, your body's just not going to tolerate it. Um, so you have to start to take rest days. Uh, you have to do stretching. You have to throw strength training. If you're not already doing that into your regimen, which is something that I did a while back as Ben well knows. Um, those are some of the things. So really diet days off rest and also sleep is another big one that I forget about. Uh, make sure that you get adequate sleep. I was just going to ask you about that. Uh, thoughts on resistance training and, you know, can that, is there a sweet spot with resistance training as there is in uh, endurance training? Um, so the answer is, uh, yes, there is a sweet spot. I don't know what any, I don't know that anybody knows what that sweet spot is, Ben. Uh, certainly, um, 
everything that I read these days and what my colleagues are, are, are agreeing upon is that you need to include resistance training in whatever you're doing. Uh, no matter what the sport is, there's benefit. So now let's get into kind of healthcare in general. Um, so right now, we obviously are living in a time where, I mean, 60% of adults have at least one chronic health condition and in children, it's somewhere uh, around half of children. So what are some of the things that you think have contributed to that in, in recent years? Um, couple of things. Number one is uh, what I would call the uh, mechanization of society, I think is the term that's used. In other words, um, you know, our, our grandparents, uh, you know, they didn't sit in front of a computer all day. Um, um, you know, they didn't drive everywhere. They, they walked into town to get their milk or their bread or whatnot, that sort of thing. They lived a more active lifestyle just because they had to to exist. So that's, that's number one. Um, there's a condition out there right now that's a, it's a real term called sitting disease, uh, where people are sitting in front of a computer or whatever their occupation is, really sitting all day long um, is, is becoming an issue. So number that's number one. Um, number two is one of my big pet peeves uh, is just the whole food industry, uh, which is no surprise to you guys. Um, I, I say to my patients that anything in a box, can, or a bag is guilty until proven otherwise um, because um, the, the food industry doesn't really care about your or my health. Uh, they just care about their stock price and selling their food items to us. So um, I, I spent a fair amount of time uh, with my patients uh, talking about, about their nutrition. So the food industry is really number two. Um, sort of, a, you know, along those lines also is, um, is the whole FDA, the, uh, the food tree that they put out periodically that they redo. A few years back, uh, they were big proponents of all these carbs, and I think that contributed to the obesity epidemic. So, so those are those two things. Um, and then certainly, uh, you know, I, I can't let the cigarette companies and the vaping companies get away with anything either. Um, you know, they had data back in the 60s and 70s that cigarettes were bad for you that, that was basically hidden away from the public. And, um, you know, there were times where, um, you know, cigarettes were promoted for your health. Um, they, they gave them as rations to the GIs in World War II. Uh, I have a picture of uh, some cyclists in the Tour de France literally smoking during a training ride because in those days they, they sold them as, uh, you know, expanding your lung capacity and you'd have more aerobic capacity with that. So it, it's a great picture I have in one of my exam rooms. Um, so the cigarette industry is probably, those are the three big things. So cigarettes, food, and just the mechanization of society. How do you, how do you think a company or um, a product can get away with promoting what an item, whatever it is, it happens to be food, cigarettes, alcohol, as being healthy for you, as being beneficial when it is objectively not. How does that, how do you think that happens? Then it's America. They can put any ad on TV or in a newspaper that they want or on the computer. Even it's if it's not. And Even excuse me even if it's blatantly false yeah sure it's america i mean yeah yeah <laughs> i think it really comes down to like money i mean we've talked about this in our previous podcast i mean it, it really is you cannot underestimate the power that funding has like tobacco for example like you said doctors were promoting it i mean 
this is a thing that has massive amounts of power and it's the same in the food industry yeah. now. Oh yeah, yeah, with lobbyists in DC and all that sort of stuff. There's no question that as the FDA puts the that, that food pyramid together, that there's lobbyists trying to get them to put their items on the top of the pyramid or on the or on the part of the pyramid where we sheet the most of. Absolutely, it's a big part of it. So lobbying here, political action committees, excuse me, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's where I think grains, that's how grains became like the bottom of that food pyramid. And yeah. even though like, I wouldn't say there are a lot of people in the paleo movement saying like, oh, grains are bad and all this stuff. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I do think that there are more substantial uh, nutritional foods, like highly nutritious foods that you can include. But I do think that a large part of the fact why like eating wheat and eating like that, making up the core part of the American diet really was because of lobbying. I think you're absolutely right. And the problem was it was processed wheat. Okay. Right. Any food in its most natural form is going to be healthy in the in, in the in the right uh, components. Uh, but you know, look at white bread. Uh, I mean, you know, Wonder Bread. You know, was what my my mother for whatever reason didn't serve it to me. But Wonder Bread is what I grew up with. You know, it's wonderfully crap is really what it is. <laughs> my parents too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So. Jorge, I know you loved. Uh, you talk about this one a lot the concept of interconnectedness. Right, so something that I've really stressed, um, especially, I'm not sure if you're familiar with functional medicine. So give me some sense as to what you mean by that. I probably am, but maybe by not, not that term. Right, so it's a, it's a newer kind of field, I guess. Um, and they, they just started a, um, a section for functional medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. And it's basically like, what's referred to as root cause medicine. So it's uh, trying to employ a very holistic approach to health. Um, so kind of like you were telling me, like, you know, you really do want to spend as much time as possible with patients to talk about diet, to talk about sleep, to talk about all of these lifestyle factors. But there's simply like one may not be enough time. And right. two, the patients may just not be ready to make that leap. So functional medicine is kind of like that, taking an hour or more to actually educate the patient and make those those lifestyle changes. So the the thing that I think is really critical to that approach, as opposed to uh, the normal allopathic model, is the fact that they approach health as very holistic. So all these factors, like nothing is the panacea, nothing is everything, right? Like sleep, it's good, right? But if your relationships are trash, if your food is crappy, you know, sleep can only do so much. So what is your opinion of this this holistic approach? Oh, I, I think I think it's huge, and um, you know, unfortunately, there's some people who have a psyche who just don't want to deal with it. But there are certain patients where, if you use the term holistic medicine, or I'll use the term uh, interchangeably, you know, lifestyle adjustments with that, it's huge. Um, I have patients, uh, middle aged, young, and old, for that matter. Um, who I'll come, who will come in to see me, and they're on a list of anywhere between, I'll say, ten and maybe even fifteen prescription medicines. Some people, unfortunately, more. And if they could turn their lifestyle around, they could get rid of probably two thirds of those drugs. So, you know, some of them are going to be diabetes meds. So there could be on upwards of three diabetes medications where if they just ate right, exercised, and lost weight, we could get rid of at least two of them and maybe all of them. Same thing with hypertension. I keep piling hypertension medicines on to get their blood pressure control because in the end, I really just need to do that even because they may not 
be willing or ready to make that change. Once again, lose weight and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I could get rid of probably two or three of their hypertension medicines. Same thing with the cholesterol meds that I throw at people. So, so yeah, uh, lifestyle is huge. Um, you know, I try and deal with the immediate problem, you know, is their blood pressure controlled? Is their diabetes controlled? Um, and, um, you know, those sorts of things. And then I will try and sort of uh, circle back to all these lifestyle issues and, and get them going in the right direction. But, yeah, it's huge, and it's really very important. Um, uh, American society's gotten lazy, you know, most of my, not most, there are a number of my, number of my patients who would rather take a pill slash chemical than not eat that piece of cake and not go out for that walk. I want to interrupt today's show by talking to you, not about a product or a supplement, but something which I've poured hours and hours worth of research, writing, editing, and revising. And that's my book, Return to Human. How modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our immune systems and how to move back towards optimal health. So the reason I wrote the book is really because I want to introduce people to the top aspects, the major aspects of health, which have been largely ignored. And I think that we've taken many things that we do in the modern world for granted. And I think that that's come to bite us in the butt in recent years. And so many things that we do, we don't even realize that that are really uh, quite alien to our physiology and our biology. And so I wrote the book in order to try to bring awareness to all of these, these habits, these modern habits that we take part in, which are really destroying our health at a fundamental level. So if you want to check that out, check the link in the description. Uh, it's only $3, but it's a great comprehensive guide. For those who want to learn more about uh, the microbiome, about light exposure, about circadian rhythms, sleep, and all that stuff, and how it relates specifically to the immune system. So check that out, and I hope you enjoy the book. Right, that's a big, it's a big mindset issue, a big psychological yeah. issue then. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So if they're going to walk into my office with the right mindset, that's a different story than if they're going to walk into my office with, you know, th this is who I am, I am not changing. Dr. Silverman, have you, have you found an approach, like a, a way of speaking with people, a mode of questioning that can, that you've found to best help change their mindset or a, a tactic that, will gradually over time acclimate them to healthy living? So the answer is absolutely yes. Um, so um, the one thing that I always try and do is to enlist other family members. So uh, I, I encourage them to bring other family members with them. So if it's a woman, you know, bring your significant or either way, a woman or a man, bring your significant other with you. Um, if you don't have a significant other, bring your parent or bring your child with you because that person is almost always my ally because they want to see their family member do well. So number one is enlist the family. Um, number two is I use guilt all the time. Um, I, I, I really do. I say, listen, um, you know, you, you want to see your son graduate college, get married and have grandchildren. If you don't do that, you're, if you don't change these things, you're not going to be there for those things. So trying to get them to understand that they are not going to be there for life's events um is, is another big one those are the two things that i try um you know i would say i'm successful in moving the needle on 
80% of my patients, not all the way to the left or to the right, whichever I need, way I need to go, but at least moving it. Um, and then the other thing I try is uh, incrementalism. So, you know, I'm not going to throw 10 pieces of advice at them at once. Okay. So my first piece of advice may be just get rid of the sugared sodas, get rid of the fruit drinks, and then come back and see me next time. And we'll talk about the next step. Or I might have somebody who shuffles down my hallway with a walker or a, uh, a cane and I'll say, all right, figure out a way to get 10 minutes of exercise every day. And, you know, I give them suggestions. And then I incrementally increase that. And they come, they often come back and say, all right, well, I am doing that. And I'll say, all right, well, we're done that. Let's take the next step up. And uh, I find I have a fair amount of success. I really do. I use myself as an example, too. Um, when they tell me they don't have time, I say, listen, I'm a busy professional. Um, you know, I'm up early. Uh, I get it done. I, I work out six days a week. Um, and uh, if I can find the time, you can find the time. Now, some people legitimately don't have the time. I mean, I have people, unfortunately, who drive down to Northern Virginia. Ben knows that, or hey, you may not know that drive. Um, it's well over an hour commute each way. So that's two hours out of their day. And plus, they have to work and be able to tell me. Some people legitimately don't have the time. But for those that do, um, I, I, I am pretty successful. But even for those who don't have the time, sorry, I'm rambling here a little bit. Um, it's like, all right, well, park your car farther away from where you have to walk into the office, you know, walk up the steps, you, you know, the little things as well as what I also try and get them to do. Are you familiar with the name uh, Dr. Ragan Chatterjee? No, I'm not. Tell me who this person is. <laughs> he, uh, Jorge actually modeled his, some of his organization off of him. And so one, he's, he's a doctor that um, not necessarily functional medicine, but he's more gone in that approach recently. Okay. And so he's talk, he talks about the ripple effect where, as you were saying, if you can get them to do little things over time, they'll say, oh, like, this, is, this is beneficial to me. I'm seeing a change. Like, I, I started doing this in my life. I started, I started eating apples instead of cereal in the morning, you know. And, and he says that motivation that they get from making those little easy changes spills over into other areas of their life. Have you experienced that? I've absolutely seen that. Yes, yes, yes. Because usually once I get that ball rolling down the hill, it, it picks up speed. It's just pushing the ball from the peak of the hill and to get it get moving down the, down the hill. Yes, absolutely. I think also maybe helping them to zoom out a little bit, like you said, like you know, are you going to be there for your children when they're older? Are you going to be there for your grandchildren when they're older? And recently for me, something that I learned, which was pretty profound is this idea, uh, this new field called transgenerational epigenetics. So the fact that, you know, what you do in your life doesn't only affect you, but it affects the gene expression of your children and even your off, like your, your children's children. So that's been profound to me because it's, it's, you know, the things that I may do or I may choose to do, it just makes me think I need to take responsibility because if I plan to have children, I want them to be as healthy as possible. Right. So, Orfe, you, you said the right term is responsibility. Uh, and sadly, not everybody wants to take responsibility, but you're absolutely right. Right. So now, since we've been talking about so many different aspects of health, uh, I want to get your opinion on what you think has been you know, what you've seen in your, in your patients, what is the one aspect of life if you had to choose it that has the greatest impact on somebody's health? So you gave me four choices. And as I look at these mindsets, number one, uh, it, it really is. Cause if somebody doesn't have the mind to do something, 
it ain't happening. Um, and then the other three, you know, I, I like exercise, nutrition, relationships. They're all equally important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait one over the other. Uh, but clearly, mindset is number one. And, and usually, I can tell in the exam room if they've got the mindset or not. Got to be that first step, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I have one guy I take care of. He is a brilliant, I don't know, astrophysicist or something like that. And uh, was just morbidly obese. Um, and first name happened to be Ben. Um, and, you know, he had heart disease, had a stent, high blood pressure, cholesterol. And his wife would come with come in with him. And she was a thin woman. And, and you know, I, you know, slowly over time as I got to know him, I, 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 I somehow worked around the edges of his, uh, of his brick wall that he had up and realized that he didn't have the capability to lose weight on his own. Um, but I finally got him to have gastric bypass surgery. So that's an extreme measure for some people, but there are some people uh, who have that surgery, I'll come back in a second, who just do well. So it took me multiple visits to convince him to have it. He had gastric bypass surgery. He now walks into my exam room and you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize the guy. Um, he, he's gone to international meetings where the nameplate's been in front of him and someone said, no, excuse me, that's not, you know, who's supposed to be sitting here. He says, no, that's me. Um, but the best part of the story is he has now become a runner and he did the Marine Corps Marathon. Um, so, you know, he sends me a picture of every medal that he does. So I just got him over that big hump. Yeah, I don't know how much weight he lost. Well over 100 pounds, maybe 150 pounds. Um, and, and is now, you know, running marathons. So um, it's just getting them, getting somehow into their mind to get them to make that switch. And I have other success stories like that. I mean, a lot, I would say I probably have 20 or 30 people who were just not going to be able to lose weight. They were so far in that ditch. They were not getting out of it. Gastric bypass surgery turned their life around. My own brother-in-law finally did it and is doing great. You know, he's living in the gym now six days a week. I have two questions on that. First one for me and for anyone else who's listening who doesn't know what gastric bypass surgery yeah. is, you, uh, could you explain that in depth a little bit if you want? So it's actually laparoscopic surgery, which is um, relatively minor surgery. You, you, you go into the hospital in the morning, and most of these people go home the next day. And basically what they do is they bypass the stomach such that it can't absorb a lot of food, and they make the stomach smaller as well. So your satiety, or you fill up quicker. So you might sit down to a big meal, and it's like, well, I can't get that down because I have a much smaller stomach. Uh, so they bypass some of the absorption um, so um, because uh, there's less stomach there to absorb it, and they make the stomach smaller. And there's also all sorts of different variations on a theme now. There, there's a, something called a gastric balloon where they put a, a balloon inside your stomach uh, that um, causes you to have your satiety level you know, fill up sooner so you, you eat less. Uh, there's gastric banding where they wrap a band around the stomach rather than surgically cutting things. And there's all sorts of new variations on a theme. And, and, and when they look at these patients down the road, they're – their uh, diabetes gets better, their hypertension gets better, their cholesterol gets better. So that's gastric bypass. So oftentimes for people that really struggle making the lifestyle changes, this one immediate surgery, this one immediate operation can really put them on the right path. Yeah, it's really miraculous for these people, Ben, because they get that because once they've lost the weight, I, 
I mean, the weight just falls off of you. You just can't believe how quickly these people lose this weight. Um, once they've lost the weight, they now say, well, hey, I can move. Because, you know, some people are just so overweight, they just can't move. I know neither of you guys could ever imagine being that way, but they just can't move. Uh, you know, for them to get up and, and walk from their living room to their front door is an effort. Um, so, but now once the weight is off of them, they can move again. I get them into a walking program and then something else from there. So yeah, it's, it's really miraculous. So a big part of that you think is the satiety factor. The yeah. fact that, because I think like the thing that I can't really comprehend first, firsthand because I'm pretty skinny, like I'm very skinny and I've been that way since puberty started. And so I usually don't get very hungry, like very often, unless I do a really hard workout. So the thing is like, if a lot of obese uh, patients or obese people that I know, uh, they're really hungry all the time. So it's like, how can we do something that can make you actually feel, you know, full? And I think if there, if people aren't willing maybe to do a dietary intervention or uh, some sort of lifestyle intervention that helps, um, like really increase satiety, and I know that uh, there are a lot of different hormones involved with satiety, then yeah, this, this sounds like it could be a really good solution for them. Yeah, and some of them, they're not necessarily hungry or okay, but they're they're depressed. So food is their comfort. You know, they may have, you know, cruddy relationships in their life or their job isn't very good or, or whatnot. Their living circumstances are not great. Uh, and uh, it's, it's that's what they turn to for comfort. Right. That makes sense. So unless Ben has something else that he wants to ask. I did. I did. So my second question was going to be, I've noticed a theme as as you've been telling us about your about your job and the, who you interact with. You, for almost every single patient you've mentioned, you've said they've been overweight, they're trying to treat their obesity, trying to get their weight down, they can't move. And I was thinking, like your your title is you are a cardiologist, but it it's it sounds to me like you're treating like you're you're treating their obesity like obese patients most of the time and that and that seems to be like seems to be the main goal is that how does that seem to be? well i don't want you to think that all my patients are obese because that's certainly not the case let's start there I, I mean i have plenty of patients uh who are exercising regularly and eating right and because of bad genetics or maybe bad eating habits, um, you know, they end up with heart disease or sometimes even just bad luck. Uh, so I have plenty of patients who are ideal body weight. Uh, I'm just focusing on, on these folks only because they're my biggest challenge. Okay. Um, you know, just two real quick examples um, is I had a guy in um, yesterday uh, who was a spin instructor and, you know, exercises crazy. Um, and because of genetic reasons, had high cholesterol that was never really treated over the years and ended up you know, having bypass surgery. Um, yeah, I had another guy for genetic reasons who has high cholesterol um, and is an avid cyclist and swimmer um, and, um, you know, ended up having a big heart attack. So, I mean, some people it's genetics, uh, but certainly I have plenty of patients who do take care of themselves and it's either genetics uh, is why they have problems or sometimes they just come to me for an evaluation just because they're worried. So one little rabbit hole. So as I was looking through your uh, your bio, I saw that you've done three Ironman triathlons, and right. I have a cousin who's done triathlons. I've done one, but tiny, okay. and I know how hard that is. So, like, how how do you actually train for that while you're you know practicing medicine? All right. So so first of all, I want to say that now I am a retired triathlete. So let me start there. But I did it for eighteen years. Um, so you know something, it's discipline and it's scheduling. 
that that's really all it is. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I, I work out first thing in the morning. Um, if I don't do a first thing in the morning, it's not going to get done. Um, so uh, you know, I'll I'll have my cup of coffee, maybe eat a little something, do some quick computer work, and I'm out. Um, it's just it's scheduling warfare. That's really all it is, you know. So I was swimming three days a week at, at the time. I was you know in the triathlon. I was swimming three days a week. Uh, I was running two days a week and probably biking three days a week and 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 strength training one day a week. Uh, so there's some two a days in there because that adds up to more than seven. Yeah, right? well, um, and um, it's scheduling and discipline. That's what it is. And and you have to have some OCD. Yeah, right. OCD and, and, and family buy-in too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And another sub rabbit hole. What <laughs> supplements or like uh, you know dietary things did you do to support that yeah. kind of lifestyle? So, um, so presently, all I take is glucosamine and vitamin D. Um, so that's okay. the only you know pill supplements I take right now. There was a point in time where I was taking fish oil and I was taking uh, uh, curcumin tablets. Um, the fish oil data in the world of medicine isn't all that strong, so I just stopped that. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I put just put turmeric in my shakes now. <laughs> it's how I get that. So really, I, I guess in, as far as supplements go, I, my shake every morning uh, is almond milk, um, some sort of kale or green like that, uh, protein powder, uh, cinnamon, uh, turmeric, uh, hemp hearts, and ground flaxseed. So is that all supplemental stuff? Yeah, it's just not a pill. Gotcha. So that's where I am with it all. You know, my only concern about supplements is I think people sometimes use them as a substitute um, or they might eat not so well and think the supplements will over, over, you know, will take care of their problems. And the only other thing about the supplements is just not controlled. You're not always sure what you're getting. So, um, you know, so that, that's my bend on supplements. You know, I have some patients that are coming in. Um, I don't know. They're taking 15 things and I don't even know how they have time to take 15 things every day. And I say to them, you know, something, you know, maybe two or three of these things are worth it, but just eat a healthy diet and you'll get everything you need. Yeah, no, that's really. That's and that's I think people supplements. Right, right. I think people forget, you know, the title is supplements, yeah. a supplement to a good diet, a supplement to healthy exercise pattern. Yep. So Here's yeah, you. completely agree. Yeah. Um, so final question is something that I asked to uh, everyone that's that I've interviewed so far is you know, it's no secret that we're all going to die unless I'm somehow in the next few years, we find out a way to preserve. We're all but, um, yeah. what, what do you want to leave behind? This idea of like legacy is something that's become yeah. pretty important to me. So what's that message that you want to leave? Yeah, I, I read that question and it kind of stopped me for a while and made me think. So I'm glad you said it ahead of time. Um, you know, so first of all, I would say that I, I, I want my family to think of me as the absolute best father, husband, uh, you know, grandfather, cousin, whatever that I could have ever been. So I think, you know, family is, is, is the most important part of my legacy. And, and that's really become more apparent to me as I've gotten older. Okay. You know, for you guys, as young guys, it's, you know, you're not thinking about that yet. But as you start, you know, I just turned 60 this year, you start to think about that kind of thing. Um, so certainly, um, you, you know, family connections is, is a huge part of it. Um, the, the second part of it, you know, as a physician is, you know, I hope my patients will be appreciative of what I did for them and the lives that I saved and the uh, morbidity uh, that I helped them prevent and, and that sort of thing. 
Um, so certainly there. Um, you know, community-wise, I've been on some boards, so charitable things are important. Um, I was on the Almond Cancer Fund for Young Adults Board for a period of time. Uh, it's, 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 it's an important uh, issue because young adults with cancer don't have all, necessarily have all the uh, resources that older or younger people have or, or children have with cancer. So I think charitable stuff is important. And then professionally, I've been a leader. Uh, you know, I lead my group, you know, chairman of medicine. Um, and I hope that, uh, you know, one day when I'm gone, then people will say to me, hey, he was a role model. Um, he, he did the right thing. I, I think that's the other thing I would say is that I did the right thing. 99% of the time. I think it's more than you expected. <laughs> so throughout high school, uh, and this is like, like this is kind of comparing like, uh, like, a, like a mustard seed with a peach pit in terms of, of, uh, of size. But in high school, I was extremely dedicated to swimming and right. performance. Like times were everything. Practice was everything. Like dedication, discipline. I had to get that record. Like that's, that was my mind throughout all four years. And as, as a medical doctor, as a medical professional and a specialist at that, and, and also athlete, triathlete for 18 years of your life, you know, you mentioned scheduling, discipline, time management. And for me, I felt a lot of my relationships suffer yeah. in looking back at this i'm like you know i, I i'm glad that I, I i achieved the results that i wanted to achieve in that aspect but i'm wondering if maybe there was a way that i could have been more engaged with my friends um with my brother all that all those things that now are starting to become a little bit more important to me and i did you experience that and how did oh. you and you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. During the, the, the Iron Man years for me were, you know, the sort of the last seven or eight years of my career during that time frame, absolutely those relationships suffered because you're training, you can't eat enough calories because you're hungry all the time. Uh, I did have a job <laughs> um, and some leadership roles and, uh, and uh, sleep. So no, you're absolutely right. That was one thing that suffered during that time frame. And one of the decision, um, points for me to give up triathlon was exactly that. Uh, I now have two grandsons um, and who are now living in town. Um, and, um, you know, for me to go out for a four hour bike ride on Saturday and, and, you know, on a two hour run on Sunday and then spend the rest of the day on the couch sleeping because I'm so exhausted or eating, um, it's just not, it, it's just, it, it's just not important anymore. I've been there. I've done it. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Do I still work out six days a week? Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, I swim two, I bike three and, you know, strength train one uh, and take a day off. Um, but it's, it's certainly less intense and it's kind of nice to, you guys won't experience this yet to get in the pool and not look at the clock. <laughs> if you can imagine that. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, relationships absolutely did suffer. Answer. Awesome. Well, Ben, if you're, uh, if you're all set with, with questions, I really appreciate your time for coming on. I don't want to take uh, too much time. So um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. It was a really cool conversation. Okay, you guys, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, and, and you know, I want both of you guys to do exceptionally well. And uh, you're too young to realize this, but we will come out past this COVID epidemic and life will be normal again sometime, you know, next spring or summer. Uh, we just got to get through this period of time and, and we'll be fine. Okay, guys, take it easy. Thank really. you. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Okay,
Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you've enjoyed some of my other episodes, it would be very, very helpful to me if you could share this with your loved ones, share this with your family and friends, and give this a review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. That would be very, very helpful. Navigating the world of health and wellness is anything but straightforward. So if you're a little bit confused as to you know, what things are harmful. Is this food good? Is this food bad? Well, spoiler alert, it's not that simple. However, I and many others have done the heavy lifting. So I put together a book called Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our immune systems and how to move back towards optimal health. The full version is available on Amazon. Now it's around 70 or 80 pages. And so it's really a simple guidebook that you can use and an introduction to all of the major aspects of health, which is why I think it's so helpful for people who are kind of confused and lost. Here's what I cover. I cover the top six aspects of health, which if compounded, if combined together, and all of these things are done properly, then you can have amazing effects on your overall health. Because, you know, unlike what many health gurus claim, one thing will not make a healthy person. Multiple things will give you a 1%, a 2%, even a 10% if you're lucky, increase in your overall quality of life. Now that's what I set out to do when I wrote this book. So I cover those top six. I tell you very, very simple things that one, damage your immune health and your overall health. Two, how you can do the appropriate thing based on research, right? And it's not a medical recommendation. Of course, I want you to do your own research. You are responsible for you, but it's a great starting point if you're a little bit confused. Now, I understand that right now you may not want to dish out a few dollars, even though it is $3 right now on Amazon. That's okay. Because mindset is inextricably tied to your immune health, so your emotional state, your mindset, all of that directly affects how your immune system functions in response to a virus or bacterial infection and so forth. So I made that chapter 100% free for you to download. It gives you some very simple tools that you can use to reduce stress, to calm the nervous system, all in a way that's free or very, very affordable. Now, if you want that, you can click the link in the description, which says free download to chapter two, or simply head over to livedamwell.com. I hope you check it out. I hope it helps, and I'll see you in the next episode.